The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Why do we sing? Um, for the most part, the last several Sundays, um, you know, we've taken some time to talk about different parts of our gathering, and many of you are new. We take time before we teach most weeks to sing a few songs. We usually sing a few songs at the end, and it's not just ritual. There's a reason for it. And this morning, I just want to highlight two things and two reasons. This is what I want you to remember. So when you come in, the singing is not just to get it so that everybody can find a seat. It's not just so that we can deal with the flow of those of you that come on time, which is a guest, and those of you that are regular that come late, all right? So we just go ahead and call that out. Like all of our guests look at the website and the service starts at 10, so they come at 9.50 because they don't know that you're supposed to come 10 minutes late and not early, right? And so we, we don't just sing to give time for everybody to arrive. We come to sing what I believe is for two reasons. The first reason is what Paul told the church in Ephesus. We sing to remember. We sing so that we can remember the things that we've taught, the things that, we've been, that we know to be true about God. Our songs this morning were filled with great theology about what's true and right and noble and just in, our, in, in what we know to be true about our Father in heaven, what we know to be true about what comes in Jesus Christ. And we also have, we're singing songs about the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst us. And our songs serve as an opportunity for you and I to say, wow, the pressures of my life, I have forgotten that God is and these songs are helping me. And then the second reason why we sing is that you and I do not naturally praise. We praise things that we are engaged with, but we don't naturally just want to say, God, you're so good. There are a few of us that have disciplined that in us, but our songs help us to learn that we need to be a thankful people. We need, and we have many reasons to say, God, you are awesome. My father-in-law used to have as a pet peeve that the word awesome was only allowed in our family to be in reference to God. So when you're around the, um, the Asimus side of our family, if one of the grandchildren, or God forbid me, used the word awesome for anything that was regarding something else, my father-in-law would not hesitate to correct me and say, no, awesome is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing even close to that. But our praise is not natural. We have to be taught. It's almost like athletes that are conditioning themselves to excel at their sport or those of you that are wanting to learn medicine so that you can help people that are sick. You are conditioning your mind. You're conditioning your life so that you can execute the thing that you're preparing for. Our worship and our singing is a chance for you and I to say, I need discipline to praise and thank the Lord. And so whether we need to be reminded of our theology or we praise, we need to be reminded how to praise. That's what our song service is. So I'm anticipating when the sermon is over and we sing these last two songs that we're going to get our practice of praise on, okay? And you guys are like, oh no, what does that mean? <laughs> all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk around and make eye contact with all of you. <laughs> I'm going to be like, what are you doing? You know, I'm just standing here. That's not the time. This is a time for us to remember that God is good, right? All right, okay. I want to invite our scripture reader up because I'm getting a little wound up and it's not even a sermon yet. So John chapter 3 is on the screen for you. 
That is awesome. Yes, Amen. Is. Good morning, church. Um, today we're in John 3, 14 through 21. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. The title of this teaching today is The Snake and the Love of God. Um, it's not necessarily very often that churches, unless you're in West Virginia, talk about snakes in services. Um, and some of you that are slightly aware get that joke. The rest of you are like, what does that have anything? There is a Baptist denomination that predominantly is focused with rattlesnakes, and a lot of their congregants are in West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And they believe that if you're without sin, they can have snakes running around the room and you won't get bitten. But if you have sin, you'll get bitten. I would not want to attend that church because even though I'm a pastor, I would get bitten. And, uh, and uh, so it's just, there's just so many things that, are, that, that impact our theology, but the thing that I love about this particular passage of Scripture is that the reference to Moses, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, has literally become a symbol for many medical organizations. There's a serpent wrapped around a post that is embedded in a lot of logos of hospitals and science and research centers that are designed to study the human body so that no matter what faces it, it can be that that organization can help people to look for healing. And so with that imagery in mind, I want you guys to know that the snake I feel like is appropriate, even though snakes throughout human history have been positive and negative. I mean, there are religious organizations and and um, other world beliefs that have both rich positive interactions with snakes and rich negative interactions with snakes. And so I, I want that not to be the primary distraction in John chapter 3. But I want to come back here to the point for the letter. We've been in this now for seven weeks, and Leon did a great job last week of talking you guys through the whole Nicodemus story, and we want the manifestation of the Spirit's power in our midst. We want to, I love the way that he talked about John's gospel being like an eagle that just soars higher, has a greater view, and it just looks at Christ with just a different level of intensity. But the problem is, is the summation in John 20, which I think we have on the screen. We've been doing a lot of reading out loud together this morning, so I'm just going to read this to you. But John, in his own letter, gave a specific reason for why he's writing the letter. And we need this to be forefront in our mind as we go through it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. I, just, I think that's important, is because there's a lot written but John, in keeping it condensed and concise for his followers, decided not to take his years and write down everything because Jesus was highly active. 
People all the time ask, well, why did Jesus heal these people and not heal these people? Why did he do this one miracle, not this miracle? How do we know he didn't do more? Because John here says that he did more than they wrote about, and so which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. Now, this is it. This, it was written so that you and I could believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then, for those of us that then believe, that we now believing may have life in his name. That, I would say, is the struggle for the majority of us in here this morning, is the life in his name. Many of you are, because of the life you're living, are now struggling to say, well, I looked at Jesus, but I'm still struggling. I'm still feeling the pressures of life. I would even say that I'm in that boat as a minister to you guys this morning with all that my family has faced, the things that we've been dealing with as a, as a church in Baltimore City for these almost nearly last 12 years. I would say that there's moments where I'm just like, Lord, this is heavy. This is weary. I want to feel alive. I want there to be abundant life. And so many times we think abundant life equates financial security. We think abundant life means that we own three or four homes, and one of them is Hawaii, and the other one's in Tahiti. And we, and we just have this crazy mindset that, that you and I being abundantly alive means we have more resources than we could ever spend. Now, there are some Old Testament scriptures that people use, and there are denominations that do focus on prosperity in our faith. But when you look at the words of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, Jesus did not promise this life all the blessings, but he promised for those of us that had our eyes fixed on him that we would experience abundant life through the trials that we're facing. And so this passage really does begin to help us to see what he's talking about. But let me be very clear, all right? This John 3.16 passage is showing up on signs all over the place. If you watched college football yesterday, most likely you saw it more than once. If you were a part of the race yesterday, which I can tell by the way some of you are getting up and down this morning that you ran in the race yesterday, whether 5, 12, or 20-some miles, whatever it was that you attempted to run, we perse you persevered, you're going through it, but there is there is something that you and I need to remember in this passage, and that is that you believe and you live. John 3.16, being on signs and everywhere, does not diminish what is true. But many times when you put something out in front of people over and over and over and over again, you get conditioned to not think there's much power in it or that it's not that amazing. And so because somebody else is holding up John 3.16 and we don't want to be associated with billboard holders or poster holders or people that are hollering, you and I then say nothing. And my prayer for us as a church is as we go through this gospel, that your tongue gets unlocked. Whatever is holding you silent around the people that you're in relationship with, would you gain confidence as we go through this gospel to speak that Jesus is the healer? to speak that he is the one that has set us free. Too, too many times, we even have a hard time even in this room talking about Jesus to one another let alone going out around a corporate business table with people that trust you, people that have asked you to dinner and to lunch and ask you, like, how do you do investments or what do you do in this situation? And they trust you because they're asking you questions, yet you and I have not felt comfortable enough to say, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. We don't help them see how the world has misprogrammed them, has painted a false picture of Christ, 
We are comfortable in our salvation, but yet we don't know how to engage. And John is giving us an incredible example of how we engage. He knew his audience knew everything about the pole and the snake. It was an element in their story, and not only was it a powerful moment in their history, the, the, the serpent on the pole had two powerful moments in its history. If you were a Jewish person, you knew the days when Moses was holding it up, and you also knew the day that Hezekiah grabbed it and smashed it. Because Hezekiah realized, if you actually, the story of the serpent on the pole, which we're not going to take time to read, is in Numbers 21, 5 through 8, if you're taking notes and you want to follow along later. But the story of Hezekiah and 2 Kings is what I wanted to write to you about. How many of you in this room are in your 20s? In your 20s. Go ahead and be proud. Tiana, twice. Um, the, plus some. Um, the, uh, could you imagine doing something in your 20s that people are still talking about positively over 2,000 years later? Those of you that are in your 20s right now, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he did something I'm about ready to read to you. 25. And it changed the trajectory of a nation, so much so that it is now in John's letter, talking about the serpent and the snake and the pole, in the sense that he is using this illustration as a way of saying Jesus. And so here in 2 Kings 18, verse, starting at verse 2, I know the Main verse is verse 4, but he says this. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. Wow. Longer than he was alive when he took over. Like, that's, that's amazing. He had more years as king than he was without being the king. And his mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. And he, and he did what was right, listen, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Now, let me just stop here for a minute. David was not his father. David was his great, great, great grandfather. But yet, because he was king, he's in these lines. And so in the Hebrew understanding, he was this great descendant. It was honoring. It was powerful. It was a reminder but I don't want you to be confused by that. David was not his biological father. He removed um, the high places and smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles, which were other false religious poles that were now all over the, the land of Judah. And he broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had begun burning incense to it. And Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and there was no one like him among the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. And he had held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. What a testimony. No matter, I mean, could you imagine for 29 years being the king of a nation and your reputation is, is he never wavered. He kept his eyes on the Lord. He wasn't wishy-washy. He didn't, he had a spine. Like he realized that once you look to God, you can look nowhere else and be satisfied. There's no other voice worthy of being followed than the one true God, which in his time he only knew of Yahweh. But in John's gospel, he's now introducing not only Yahweh, but the son of Yahweh, which was equal to Yahweh. And he's now introduced the spirit of that Yahweh 
as a part of us. And so there's so much that's beginning to happen here, but it is not designed to bring confusion to us. It is as simple as saying, for God so loved you that he allowed himself to be lifted up. And so here he goes on, if I, let me finish. He, he held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. And he kept the commands the Lord had given to Moses and the Lord was with him and he was successful in whatever he undertook. Now, I want you guys to also understand this. If you study his history of being a king, he was successful in everything he undertook, but it doesn't mean he didn't experience pain. He faced wars. He had to show up at people's homes and say, your son, your daughter was lost in this battle for the Lord. Like there were hard moments in his kingdom. There were, it wasn't just that they were not persecuted and there weren't other nations raging up against them and there wasn't famine and harvest struggles and business problems and, and advancements in the city. He faced challenges. He faced real life. There were real illnesses in his family but he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus for the entire time. There's other books referred to as like the Wisdom of Solomon. They're in the Apocrypha. That's, uh, for those of you that understand Bible history, it was, there, were, there were certain letters, 14 of them in particular, that were taken out in the 1600s. Um, the Catholic Church preserved many of them and continued to use them as like an inner testament, like the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, the New Testament. And then there's other denominations like the Lutherans that still keep these letters that they believe were written by good men. They just, certain denominations think they were inspired. Others don't think they were inspired. But there's something said in one of the wisdom literatures that I thought was really prevalent. And it's in the wisdom of Solomon in chapter 16, verse 7. It says this, For he, he that turned himself towards it was not saved by the thing that they saw, but, um, but by thee, the Savior of them all. So he's referencing the serpent. And he's probably referencing Hezekiah's action. And this was written around the time of Jesus' birth, this wisdom literature. Um, and it was referencing the fact that you and I have a struggle with the thing, much like the Lord's table. Many times there are a lot of people that will come and they'll worship the cup, they'll worship the table and the, the setting, but they forget the Jesus that was the Savior of it all. And so we'll come to church to participate in a ritual or a practice, but our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus. And we're not focused on the fact that he's the one that is the healer and the sustainer. And others of you might even be, have an unhealthy connection to the leather-bound Bible that's under your arm, where you are more concerned about the pages of that rather than people reading the scriptures on your life. You're, you're drawn to Bible study after Bible study after Bible study, but yet you still have a struggle telling people that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Are we then worshiping something that is a symbol of our faith and not the faith that we have in Christ alone? And so when we begin to look through John 3 here, verses 14 through 21, I believe that verse 14 is standing out to the whole premise of John 3.16 because John is saying Jesus is going to be lifted up. People will need to look to him for healing and for salvation and the only cure is to look at the Son of Man dying on the cross and finding life through believing in him. I don't believe John could be any clearer of tying this in to one of the most popular passages of scripture that most people know. And so here's the question. How can the crucifixion of Jesus be like putting the snake on the pole? It almost seems like as if um, the, 
the problem was the snake in the Old Testament, so how is Jesus going on the cross because he wasn't the problem, right? So if the snake in the Old Testament story was the people were being bitten by vipers in the wilderness, and so Moses, in order to get healing for them, made a bronze image of a serpent and put it on a pole, Jesus is never the problem. Like, we don't, he didn't need to go on the cross because of what he had done, but he was going to the cross. And what I believe he's saying, what John is saying here is this, and I have it on the slide for you. What he's saying is that the evil, which was, which was and is in the world, the deep-rootedness within us all was somehow allowed to take out its full force on Jesus Christ. We spend a lot of time on this, the Good Friday through Easter, talking about how Jesus took all of that upon himself. But here John is continuing to give forecasting to what it looked like for Jesus to be lifted up at the end of his letter. And it is in Jesus that we are seeing what God has done about it. When you get a chance to look at Jesus, much like he said to Nathaniel, we talked about just a few weeks ago, like, I know you and I want you to follow me so you can see the moments where heaven and earth, where angels are ascending and descending, the Jacob and Esau story. And so here, I believe John is saying to them through John 14 through 21, that Jesus on the cross is one of the ultimate places where heaven and earth were coming together. If you want to see the angels ascending and the angels descending, and you want to see the power and the glory of God, you will see it in no better place than in Jesus when he was lifted up. The cross, I believe, then is that ultimate transition place for us. And I believe that's what John was trying to say here. But I, I, this, is, this is part of the way I want to kind of bring this to a conclusion because I still struggle with evil. I, can I just be authentic with you guys just for a moment? Because Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. Like he took on sin and death. He took on every sin that you and I have committed if you and I are looking at him, he paid the price of that so that we could be eternally free. But there are people in this world, including you and I, that are still making choices for the reasons why Jesus died. And because of that, we hurt each other. Because of that, the decisions that corporations make hurt people. But yet, the decisions I make as a neighbor to my neighbors to the left and right of me sometimes hurt them. And if I'm not careful, I'll be worried about everybody else's problems but my own. And it's like, what problems am I causing in other people's lives? Because when I'm in a bad mood, it infects my family. I'm surprised they didn't all in agreement. Just stand up and say, amen. Like, let's praise the Lord. Sing, let's sing songs now. There's a confession, right? Uh, but when, 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 when evil still shows itself, you and I have a tendency to doubt. But I just want you guys to remember in the story when people were being healed in the Old Testament in Numbers, as they are being bitten in the legs, they're looking at Jesus, or they're looking at the symbol for healing, the serpent on the bronze. They were still being bitten by vipers. It wasn't like as soon as Moses elevated the symbol, all the vipers just vanished. And that's the struggle that many of us have, is like we believe that when Jesus went to the cross, all the evil in the world immediately vanished. But yet what Jesus did was he took the power out of that evil and then commissioned us to go and announce it as a way that we can keep pushing it back. Because what he's saying is here, is, is referencing his introduction, is that some people prefer darkness over light. Some people, even those of us in this room, will want to step into light only so far, but we don't want everybody to see every aspect of our life. We, we want to keep certain things just to ourselves. And it's in the darkness that evil really reigns. 
Nothing good generally steps out of the dark. It's Halloween time, and so um, my son did a search for Halloween costumes, so now I'm getting advertisements for Halloween costumes in my Instagram feed, um, which I think is really strange and weird, okay? But yet there is a person that had a costume from head to toe, and they looked like a bush that you would set by your front steps. So they were fully, they looked like, a, like one of those tall bushes, and the people were walking by, and then he would just step out, like in this, these leaves and everything would just go flying, and I'm like, that's the type of costume that I would want. Kids are standing, coming to the door for candy, and I look like a tree, and ah! and I just watch them wet themselves. It'd be amazing, right? But there's evil in our hearts, right? Why would I want to do that to a small child? <laughs> right? Why would that even cross my mind of wanting to harm somebody in that way and put somebody in trauma for the rest of their life and counseling beyond their years? Um, but Jesus died so that you and I could join him in announcing a healing, that we can let people know you can look to Jesus, he's trustworthy, and your sins will be forgiven. Not believing means that we're choosing to remain in darkness. And that's my struggle with, with my trying to figure out how to talk with some of you, because I know it's not my responsibility to convict you. I mean, I think the Holy Spirit has to be involved, and I need to continue to be obedient to what God wants me to say, and I want you to be obedient to your friends, but we need to be praying because somehow, when we talk about Jesus, people don't want it. They don't want the light. Because maybe what we're saying doesn't seem like light. Or maybe it's because darkness has such a hold on us that we don't want to give it up. Like, we're telling them that Jesus is the light, but it's like as if we're talking to them through a crack in the door from the darkness, and all they see is our eyes. Like, yeah, you need to give your life to Jesus, but don't look at mine, Right? It's like maybe if you and I allowed ourselves to be fully in the light, other people would want to step out of darkness and into the light. The darkness must be condemned, I believe, that John is saying here, and that's why Jesus took it all on himself, because Jesus doesn't want you and I to be condemned. The evil in this world is what needs to be defeated. I mean, God created his image into all of us, and he loves us beyond our wildest imaginations, and we need to learn to walk in that. I believe that the eternal life that John is hinting at here and talking towards here in John 3, which we'll see in more fruition as we get to the end of his letter, is the fact that we can have eternal life in the age to come when Jesus has just made it all right. There's going to be a time when Jesus truly is Lord over everyone, and everyone is in the light. Could you imagine what it would be like to be around people and we all treated each other perfectly? You and I have been around people and we know what it feels like to be loved well, but I don't know if any of us in this room know what it feels like to be perfectly loved. And that's why our eyes look to Jesus and we have such a hope for eternity. But the point of John 3, 14 through 21, is this. The point of the whole story is that you and I don't have to be condemned. You and I don't have to let the snake kill you. God's action in the crucifixion of Jesus has planted a sign in the middle of history, and that sign says, believe and live. So today, what's holding you back in your belief? 
why have you yet to say, I believe in Christ? And for those of you that have believed in Christ, what's holding you back from telling people that they can believe and live? What is the struggle with it coming off of our tongues to people around us? I would be curious because I would love to get emails saying from some of you or even if you wrote it on the card or you filled out the contact card in the app and you just said, this is why I don't talk of Jesus. Will you help me? I would love to spend some time or assign some of our elders to you to just say, we have got to get to the point where we are okay with telling people that Jesus is where our eyes need to go. That's where our help comes from. That's where our salvation comes from. That's where everything that we long for comes from. I'm going to invite our worship team back up as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. And as they're coming up, I want to offer something to some of you that I did a couple of weeks ago because I know that some of you are still trying to wrestle through what you believe about Jesus. And if you want to look like the story in Numbers or you want to look like John was saying that Jesus is going to be on the cross and you want to state your belief in him, it is as simple as saying, God, Father, I believe in Jesus. Thank you for loving me that much. It is no more complicated than that. You don't have to say it with a certain squinched up face. You don't have to have your arms raised up. You don't have to jump up and down and say, hey, I believe. All you have to do is just look to the Father in heaven that loves you so much and just say, I believe. It's, there's no incantation. There's no spell that a minister or an elder needs to cast over you in order for it. It is just a statement of belief and pressing in and saying, I just want to be in the light. And so would you pray that simple prayer today? Would that be something that you would do? We would love to know that you've done that. If you could let the person that you're sitting with know or you want to come up and let me know, we would love to do that. We have prayer people that have lanyards that will be around the room. You can let one of them know. And if you have any doubts that your prayer was heard, they would love to say, God heard your prayer. If you just need one of us to affirm it, we will be happy to say, if you prayed that, it, God heard it. God's amazing that way. There's not a prayer that he doesn't hear. And so today, though, for the rest of us, maybe these songs will help you to remember why we need to talk about Jesus. Maybe as we come to the table and we look at one another in the face and say, hey, this is his body that was broken for you, maybe it will give you more confidence. Maybe as you dip it into the cup and you look at one another, this is his blood that was put out for the forgiveness of our sins. And then we're announcing, I'll set this aside so that none of you guys get the one I touched. But maybe as we're announcing that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ has come again, that the Lord would light a fire in you that would become contagious. Obviously, we have seats available for people that um, want to come and learn with us. But if we were to scroll through the contacts in our phone right now, just look at the list of names of people that already trust you, that are ready to hear you say, this is why I believe in Jesus Christ. 